Hello, this is Pastor Patrick Hines, and I'm here in my dad's study here in Cincinnati. And uh, if you're wondering what that thing is behind me, uh, that is a picture of fire. And I have no idea where that came from or why that's there, but um, hopefully it won't be too much of a distraction to you. This is kind of the best setting uh, for me to set up my, uh, my little iPad mini and record a program today. I'm actually going to try to do two. I was supposed to do one last night, but I was too tired last night taking care of stuff around here. Um, so uh, going to do two today, one this morning and then one this evening. <clears throat> going to try to. So today we move into uh, point two of the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, chapter two of God and of the Holy Trinity. And point two um, really is about uh, the self-existence and independence of God. And it's a great, great, great um, definition um, that we need to understand and uh, rejoice in because it's, it's wonderful stuff. So it says, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. Okay, so God has all glory, life, blessedness, and goodness in and of himself. And we could look at, you know, zillions of passages of scripture uh, here. Um, <clears throat> the Father has life in himself, John 5, verse 26 uh, says there is the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Uh, Acts 7, verse 2, um, Stephen preaching there says, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Psalm 119, verse 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. So the goodness, glory, blessedness, uh, God has these qualities in and of himself. And it goes on, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made. So God is entirely and in every way independent. <clears throat> you and I are dependent totally <laughs> on God, <clears throat> pardon me, for our existence. <clears throat> Without him, we don't exist. Uh, remember R.C. Sproul saying, what would happen if I, if I suddenly went out of the mind of God? Um, I would disappear in an instant because all of the bits of matter of which I am made and everything that I am uh, was created by God out of nothing and therefore as such is entirely and in every way dependent upon him to exist. Uh, mankind is a totally dependent creature. I was just thinking, you know, I'm dependent on oxygen. If you remove oxygen, if you remove air uh, from me just for a few minutes, I would die. So we are completely different from God in that way. God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient. Why does it say that? Because nothing in creation is sufficient unto itself even to exist. It says, God is not standing in any need of the creatures that he has made. That was one of the points that Paul made uh, to contrast the true God with all of the idols of the nations. I mean, when Paul was in Athens there in Acts chapter 17, it says in Acts 17 that his spirit was provoked. He saw all the idols and the temples and he saw all the stuff that people worship and it provoked him because it, it detracts from the glory of the true God. And Paul's sermon there in Acts 17 is, is a manifesto for the church today on how to reach our culture today. He simply starts out with creation. Acts 17, 24, before the Areopagus, Paul says, 
God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. It's a pretty gutsy statement, given the fact that he's surrounded by temples made with hands. In one of the most arrogant, prideful cities that you know gave the world its greatest philosophers and um, it was uh, prided itself on being astute and uh, cutting edge in its thinking and its ideas. And he's telling them the one true God, the one true God that exists, he doesn't live in temples made with hands. And then he goes on in verse 25, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. That's one of the weirdest things about paganism. One of the oddest things about the Egyptian cults and and religious groups and orders of priests and the uh, Roman and Greek pantheon of of deities is they the the worshipers will bring them food and leave food offerings to feed the gods what an odd thing didn't they ever notice that the food just sits there and rots uh, that nobody eats it a strange thing Uh, but Paul says to them God is not worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he's the one who gives to all life and breath and all things. God is the one who feeds us. He's the one who takes care of us. We don't take care of God. God doesn't need us to take care of him or feed him as though he needed anything from us. What God desires for man is not that he erects you know, buildings and temples and have statues and icons and light candles in front of them and kneel to them. What God desires from his creatures is obedience. Obedience and faith. And of course, nobody obeys God. Uh, Nobody uh, keeps his law to the satisfaction of his holiness. And that's why we need the gospel so badly. But God has all of these things, glory, life, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself. He is in need of absolutely nothing from the creatures which he has made. Not deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And that was Paul's doxology there at the end of Romans 11, after he describes the the glorious and marvelous plan of God uh, towards his uh, people Israel and their future and everything that he's doing uh, in the world. Paul spells it out there in Romans 11. Uh, If the, the casting away of the people of Israel for a time Uh, meant the salvation of the world. The gospel went out to all the nations and we get to hear it and everything else. What will their acceptance, what will Israel's acceptance be but life from the dead? That's one of the reasons I'm post-millennial. When the Jewish people are called, we're going to see revival among the Gentile nations, uh, the likes of which has never been seen in the history of the world. Paul just has one phrase to describe it. It's going to be life from the dead. Like the valleys, the nations of dry bones out there in the world are going to be brought to life through the gospel. Which is why the larger catechism, the larger catechism question on the, the petition of the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, our Westminster divine forefathers, our, those theologians, those great theologians of the Reformation and their successors, <coughs> pointed out uh, that one of the things that we're praying for with that petition, thy kingdom come, we pray that the Jews would be called. That's actually in the larger catechism. We are praying that God would call the Jewish people to himself. Because when he does that, that's going to signal revival among the Gentile nations. 
<clears throat> so people always want to know, what about end times? What about the future? Well, the war between Hamas and Israel, I pray for peace over there and pray for all those people. It is absolutely heartbreaking. Not just the people who have died, but the people that have been hurt. And it's just, it's just, is gut-wrenching stuff. But the fact is, that doesn't have anything to do with Bible prophecy. Now, if there were suddenly things in the news about <clears throat> Jewish people in droves repenting and coming to know Christ, that would be like, that would, would just make the chills run down the back of my spine because then I would know, okay, their acceptance. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans eleven fifteen. That means what's coming next? Life from the dead. Life from the dead among the Gentile nations. We're going to see revival here. We're going to see lots of people being convicted of their sins and brought to faith. But uh, read, that, read that petition in the larger catechism. Um, what, what do we pray for in the petition, thy kingdom come? One of the many things that we're praying, in addition to praying that Satan's strongholds would be destroyed, we're praying for the conversion of the Jewish people. Praying for that. Okay, point two of, of chapter two of the Westminster Confession goes on there. He alone... He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most, most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what the book of Job shows us. As much as I would love for my life to be smooth and, and go perfect and everything to go well, and all the things, all the good things that I pray for, for them to happen, uh, all the people I pray for their salvation to be saved. Um, at the end of the day, God is God. Yes, our prayers are a powerful means that God decrees and uses to his own holy ends to bring about his purposes. Yes, indeed. So keep praying. But in the end of everything, God is able, because he has sovereign dominion, he is able to do whatsoever uh, by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Daniel 4, verse 25, I love Nebuchadnezzar's confession after he regains his sanity, after he, he you know, he's crawling around on all fours and eating grass like, a, like an ox, after he stands up there and says, is this not Babylon the great that I've created by my great power, blah, 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 blah. And then God strikes him with insanity. When he regains his sanity, he makes one of the most powerful confessions of the sovereignty of God ever spoken by anyone in human history. And it's recorded in Daniel chapter 4, uh, verse 25, or, or excuse me, verse 35. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will. And the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? God has sovereign dominion over the world. He raises up and throws down as he sees fit. He, he makes alive and he kills as he sees fit. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. That's one thing that's very, very, very important. Does God know the future in exhaustive detail? Yes, he does. Why? Why does God know the future in exhaustive detail? Because he decreed it. Nothing is contingent to him. Nothing is uncertain. God doesn't learn anything and ultimately does not react to anything. Okay? Now, in scripture, God interacts with us in time and space because how else is he supposed to do that? He interacts in the historical narratives. 
he interacts with us. He says, Adam, where are you? You know, there's open theists who say, you know, God, God really couldn't find him. You know, God lost Adam. But why did God say, Adam, where are you? When he was hiding to, to give Adam a chance to repent, to come out um, from hiding. The same reason when you one of your kids is in trouble and they're hiding behind the curtains in their room and you see their feet sticking out, you still ask them, you know, Lizzie, where are you? Ruth, where are you? It's not that I can't find them. You know, God interacts with us in time and space, but in the ultimate sense, nothing is uncertain to him. He is most holy in all his counsels and all his works and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. So if I could summarize uh, chapter 2.2, what chapter 2.2 is saying is that God is God. He's king, not us. He rules over everything that comes to pass, not us. He can do whatever he wants. And God is not capable of committing injustice against us. That's one of the things to me is is frightening, a, a little soul stirring, is <laughs> no matter what trials ever happen in my life, my obligations are always the same. To love, serve, and obey God with joy in my heart. I think, what about Job? What a disturbing book of the Bible. <laughs> Job. So... If all my kids died the same day, all my wealth is stolen, taken away the same day, and my wife turns on God and tells me to curse God and die, I'm just as obligated on that day to love, serve, worship, fear, adore, and live my life for the glory of God as I was when everything was still together, when everything was still good. What if I lost my health? You know, I, I've, I've got poison ivy or poison sumac or poison something all over me. Went over to, uh, there's a family at a church that hosts an annual Reformation bonfire. They got a real cool farm and uh, they chainsawed a bunch of trees and needed help loading them up. And I usually don't get poison stuff. I've got this stuff all over. It's, a, it's a, here on my forehead, here, here, I got it here. You see on my neck there, it's on my wrists, on my forearms, it's on my knees. But we, we loaded up all those trees and there was something awful around all those things. And I just think, you know, this stuff is just, it's like oozing and weeping and like, I'm going to, after I drop my dad off at kidney dialysis this morning, I've got like four hours. I'm going to a CVS or a Walgreens. I got to find something to put on this or I'm going to rip my skin off. It's just driving me nuts. But I was thinking about Job, you know, Job was covered with that, that Hebrew word shakane. That's the same word for boils that's used in the plagues the plague of boils that happened in Egypt long ago. And he was covered with them from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. He couldn't even stand up. I mean, hey, at least I can walk around. And I'm sure it was worse than this poison sumac or poison ivy or oak or whatever this stuff is. But I was just thinking, what if I was covered with something like this all over? My body's just tingling and I feel terrible and it's painful. Um, I'm still obligated to worship God. I'm still obligated to love and worship and serve him with joy, even if every earthly blessing is taken from me. We've got to get a hold of this again. We've got to get a hold of the glory of God as he is in himself. Life is not about my comfort. God is much more interested in the development of my character than he is in my comfort. And as much as I love things to go smooth and well and everything to be happier and easier for me, very often, that's just not the way God orders things. And he does that for our good. 
But th that, that always is, is chilling to read because it's a great summary of, of so many passages of scripture. He is most holy in all his counsels. Everything he plans is holy and good. Even the stuff that is heartbreaking. In all his works and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. That's a powerful statement. It's a beautifully true statement. To him is due from angels and men. Whatever God says is due, that's what we are to do. Revelation 5.12 Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And dear ones, that's true no matter what's going on in my life. If I wasn't able to sleep last night because of heartache and distress or pain, I still all strength, honor, and glory and blessing are to be attributed to the Lord. Revelation 5.13 And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. That's God and his glory. It never changes. We change. We go from happy to sad. We go from joyful to not so joyful. Uh, we're strong and weak. But God is always the same. And he has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. And is alone in and unto himself all sufficient. Not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made. Nor deriving any glory from them. But only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being. Of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And hath most sovereign dominion over them. To do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creatures, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. This is the one true God who exists. This is the God to whom every human being on earth will answer on the day of judgment. And like Paul and all true believers throughout all the ages, you need to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of your own, but the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus, given to you by faith alone and Christ alone, because he alone is able to save us from our sins. Thank you for watching or listening.